I don't expect people who work for me or work in the company to do something that I wouldn't do myself, right? Mm-hmm. If I am asking them to put in long hours, I need to be there in the trenches with them. This is the Let's Grab Coffee podcast, and I'm your host, George Khalife. On this episode, I interview Kalpesh Kapadia, who's an experienced entrepreneur and investor. Currently, Kalpesh is the co-founder and CEO of Deserve, a next-generation analytics-based fintech company out of Palo Alto, California. Through machine learning and alternative data, Deserve is helping millennials and Gen Zs, the next wave of credit owners, gain financial independence through access to fair credit products. If you find the episode of value, feel free to share it out. And as always, I do appreciate if you can leave a review or rating on the podcast platform of your choice. What's interesting about your profile is it definitely has kind of a global exposure. Um, you know, you've, you've, you've definitely lived in, in different places, both in the U.S., uh, places like Singapore. Curious, what was, uh, maybe just as a brief, before we get into the, I guess, professional side, but on the personal side, what was your, your upbringing like? So yeah, I grew up in uh, a city called Mumbai. Uh, at the time, it was called Bombay. Uh, it's a 20 million people city. It's probably one of the largest cities in India. And it's a financial center like New York. But also is a cultural center like Hollywood, which is the Bollywood industry is based out of Mumbai. So, uh, you know, you sort of have this cosmopolitan uh, urban upbringing. Uh, first uh, 22 years of my life, I lived there. Wow. And then like straight after the, the 22 years there, did you then move to uh, to Singapore or then did you make the move uh, to the U.S.? Yeah, I came here to study. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I spent uh, in 2010 to 2012 uh, in Singapore. So that's much later uh, in my professional career. But uh, since 95, I've been... Uh, in the U.S., uh, so so I came here to do my master's in engineering, uh, industrial engineering and operations research, and then did my MBA right after that mm-hmm. in finance. Yeah, well, it's funny. I was, I was, I was looking at that as well, and uh, so I have a finance background, not the engineering side, um, but all my all of my really really good friends are all civil engineers, and I always tell them, I'm like, you guys always have the upper hand because it's so much. I personally think it's much easier for them to dive into finance post, you know, an engineering degree versus the other way around finance to engineering. You're just, you're built with the, you know, the critical decision-making skills, the analytical skills uh, that go with an education within engineering. What, how did you, or what made you decide to then vend into, into finance? Yeah. So I uh, come from a family of stockbrokers. Uh, my dad was a stockbroker. My grandfathers, both sides were stockbrokers. And I always had this fascination with stock market and companies and investing. And uh, as growing up in India, you either, if you're a top 1% of your class, you are always uh, advised to pursue either engineering or medicine as a career. Mm-hmm. So it's a safer choice. You will be gainfully employed. But uh, that's changing. Uh, liberal arts are becoming more prevalent uh, in the current generation. But when I grew up, it was just pre-decided that you're going to go and do your engineering degree or, or medicine. Uh, so I did that, you know, because everyone else does that. 
and you know, I always had a business mind uh, while I was doing mechanical engineering, production engineering, which is later on industrial engineering, sort of understanding how the companies work, how the, how the corporations work, how to organize, how to build, right? Uh, and then how to finance a business. That was kind of a golden combination of, of skills, if you will. Yeah, well, speaking of, of uh, stock picking, I mean, you were voted number one stock picker by the Wall Street Journal uh, in all America 2004. And that was a poll that was done when you were at a company called uh, CE Unterberg. So interesting when, when, when you were there, like that was, that was basically what you were, you were heavily involved in. Um, during your time, I guess, in finance within Wall Street, did you ever have an inch that you wanted to start something on your own or did that come much later down the line? So, yeah, I was one of the top analysts on Wall Street uh, early in my career uh, in technology space. And I always had that inkling of uh, understanding core technologies, fundamental uh, competitive advantages of companies and uh, taking my sort of fame and glory from, you know, being ranked as a top analyst across all sectors in America, I sort of decided that I want to strike out on my own and uh, uh, start an investment fund, which is kind of an entrepreneurial venture by in its own right. And at the time, it was kind of a natural career progression for people in my skill and experience where you go and start a uh, investment company or work join uh, the buy side, if you will, from the sell side. So that's what I did as the next step. I raised uh, over $100 million uh, fund to start with and uh, in, developed an investment thesis to invest in the rise of Asia, uh, namely China and India. And I did that for eight years, uh, of which one year was quite uh, stressful and uh, uh, eventful with 2008, 2008 glo- global uh, financial crisis. Mm-hmm. So uh, I sort of took my sort of Wall Street experience and and parlayed it into investing and starting a company of my own, and uh, you know uh, gathering money from uh, institutions and high net worth individuals to invest in public markets. So that I did, and then you know I wanted to do something even more entrepreneurial where you know, rather than investing in other people's ideas and companies, I wanted to build my own. And I had an idea and, you know, uh, that led me to starting Deserve. Yeah. And be- before we get into Deserve, I do want to just touch on one thing that um, I'm, I'm generally curious about and want, want your take on. When when you started up the fund, um, I'm assuming were these mo- mo- mostly public equities or were you doing some private investments as well? So the way it was structured was I had ability to invest 10% of the fund's assets in late stage private company, late just the IPO. Yeah. Okay. Curious from your time, both as an analyst, but also running your own fund, you know, you were one of the best stock pickers, essentially. Uh, and so with that comes, I guess, a lot of uh, rigorous sticking to, you know, a system, uh, having certain principles in place being diligent, maybe having a bit of intuition. I'm curious, what kind of mix did you have that led to that success? And then as a parlay to that, what were some of the connecting points between that and now, you know, 
I guess, pivoting into being your own startup founder or uh, you know, building up your own company? Yeah, so I think the the way I looked at businesses, investing in businesses, right, uh, when I was running the fund was, what is the core fundamental uh, differentiator in the business that is sustainable and defensible? Is it a technology? Is it a strategy? Is it a management team? What is the differentiator for the company, right? And you start with sort of that, and then you have some, uh, thesis around sectors that you invest in, uh, uh, in technology sector, uh, in telecommunication sector, in growth sectors. Uh, so, so you sort of have this uh, koi pond, which is a Japanese analogy where you fish in a certain pond, the types of fish you want, and you know you have apply your analytical rigor around understanding the competitive advantage of core technology differentiator or business uh, strategy or, or value proposition. And then you look at the strength of the management team and their ability to execute on, on the, the promise. Uh, and then uh, you uh, lay in valuations on top of it. Is this something that can grow faster than what market believes and what the valuation suggests? Uh, if it does, then uh, you invest. So you have to sort of first understand what differentiates this company versus some other company. Why would they win, right? Mm -hmm. uh, uh, how is the business model organized where they will make a lot of money doing what they're doing? How is the strength of the management? And are, are they going to be able to execute on the promise? And then what is the valuation? Do I feel like, or do I believe that there is upside to the story based on my own assumptions of the trajectory of the growth of the business. So that's the framework I applied in investing. It makes a lot of sense. Yeah, especially uh, curious what your take is on on the, the valuation aspect, especially when it comes to, to capital raising. Uh, we'll get to that in, in a second, but uh, definitely, you know, talking about the, um, the I guess, the deep-rooted experience that, management team has in the industry especially early on is super important uh, the kind of subsector which leads to usually attractive valuations depending on on what it is when when was the idea for for deserve coming up to you like what was it a personal pain point was it something that you've experienced on the finance side uh, curious where that where that tipping point to come to that conclusion or idea to start you know a company that is on the analytics based fintech space yeah, so I think uh, the origins of the idea, you know, were were founded in my own personal experience, what I call a founder product fit, where I uh, personally experienced uh, getting access to credit, access to loans harder when I first arrived in this country, even though I came from similar economic and academic background as my fellow American classmates. So uh, that is something that I personally experienced and then continue to experience uh, through my family and friends who came uh, subsequent years than I came. And the problem became larger given that uh, the population of uh, foreign students arriving in the U.S. universities was growing at 7% a year for 20 years straight. And they were not being offered the financial products 
that you and I take it for granted. Uh, and and that was something that occurred to me that here is this high quality uh, population that is being underserved. It's a deserving population that is being underserved and somebody needs to do something about it and why not me, right? Because I personally experienced it, I can relate to the problem. Uh, if you look at the top four companies in the world in the software space today, namely Microsoft, Google, Adobe, and IBM, all of their company CEOs came here from India as students. So think of this population as being highly lucrative population that is being overlooked when they first arrived or underserved. So that was a thesis we developed around uh, origination and underwriting software and, and workflow management and algorithm to to offer credit without the use of credit scores and social security numbers. Yeah, that, that's super important. By the way, I, I personally had that because I've, I've only been in the U.S. for a little over a year. And imagine I moved from Canada, which is, you know, as you would expect, I guess maybe more more closer to the the system or structures that we have in the U.S. And even then, I wasn't able to to get a credit card, let alone apply for one, because I didn't have you know the the the, the right credit history, the utilities, you know, maybe um enough I, I don't know I guess enough uh, history that that the bank was looking for. I was op- I was able to open a, a direct checking account, but I wasn't able to open a, a credit card. So I had to result or default to my Canadian bank that had a U.S. arm uh, to be able to to open and and run with a credit card. Yeah, and I think that is a story consistent of uh, a lot of recent immigrants uh, from all over the world. It could be UK, Australia, Canada, which are developed countries and have developed financial systems. And they all face the same problem, the portability of their credit uh, history, if you will, or credit worthiness, right? Uh, so, so that was sort of the starting point. But then uh, we expanded to see, okay, this problem is faced by not only me and people who are like me or uh, students who come here from overseas, but generally young folks in America from age 18 to 29 or first sort of cohort of 18 to 24 uh, who are college students. And then 24 to 29, we're a young professional who's at their first job. And both these cohorts face uh, similar problems that what I call a new to credit population, thin file, no file population. So we expanded the offering to uh, audience that is younger uh, and, and has uh, less experience with credit. And if you notice in the last 10 years, uh, what has happened is a debit card generation had grown up. Uh, the kids who saw their parents lose their homes, lose their jobs in 2008 crisis, 2009 crisis, came off distrusting and disbelieving in the banking system and credit system in general. So uh, up until 2014 or 15, they were relying on debit cards and the money they had and not that they were rejecting credit cards as a product. There was one side of the equation. The other side of the equation was large banks uh, were also underserving uh, because of regulations imposed upon them uh, by uh, the Dodd-Frank Act uh, in 2009. Uh, 
uh, so they had sort of deserted the market uh, and, and credit was sort of considered as a taboo uh, and associated with loans and defaults as opposed to uh, asset, right? That you have this credit score that you can use to leverage uh, the, the, the time and education and skills you have to build uh, a wealth uh, in the society. Uh, so if you look at a lot of uh, uh, younger folks are not buying cars, they are Ubering everywhere up until the pandemic. Uh, they're not buying homes. They're sort of a rental generation. Mm-hmm. So uh, you didn't feel and, and didn't develop the need for credit. The only credit product that they had been exposed to was student loans. Even that is being questioned by uh, everybody in the society. Where do we need hundreds right. of thousands of dollars in student loans to uh, get a good education? So their whole experience with the credit system doesn't develop until later in life. So we wanted to provide that entry-level product that exposes them to guardrails of developing good credit score and good credit history and that they can use later in life to get a mortgage for a million-dollar home or you know, uh, anything else they need, in, you know, buying a new car or something. Uh, so that's, that's the sort of the premise behind uh, younger folks uh, thin file, no file, first time credit uh, people, new to credit people, uh, giving them a card. Uh, And the card is a fascinating product if you think about it uh, for a minute here. Uh, It has three distinct purposes, a credit card. It's a payment utility. So uh, it works just like any other debit card and cash, right? Mm-hmm. But in the sense that it's a more secure form of payment because you have zero fraud protection liability where you don't, you're not, you know, with debit card, money goes straight out of your account. And if you buy a product from a company like a few airlines that have gone bankrupt over the last year or two, good luck getting a refund from the airline, right? Uh, whether, whereas if you use a credit card, you can just dispute the transaction and know no money out of your pocket, exactly. right? So that's mm-hmm. one payment utility. It works every time, all times, at, in all scenarios, on your smartphone, in a plastic, contactless, EMV, all scenarios, right? And it's accepted worldwide. You go to a small tea shop in India and they would accept MasterCard and Visa, yeah, right? Yeah, so wide acceptance payment form. So the second uh, use case for credit cards is a, a loyalty. Uh, companies and banks use credit card to build loyalty with their customers. Uh, If you look at Apple, they launched a credit card last year and uh, Amazon has a credit card, right? Airlines have credit cards. So loyalty and and sort of facilitation of payment for their e-commerce is a second use case. And the third use case is need, loan or need. And uh, I still have to find another easier way to borrow money than credit card. Uh, Everything else has a lot of friction. You have to answer a lot of questions. With credit card, you have a $10,000 line. You can do whatever you want with it, right? 
So loyalty, utility, and need. If you take the intersection of these three, you know, credit card serves these three functions in uh, people's lives. And they help you build good credit history. So this was a good problem to tackle. And we sort of expanded from a niche audience to a wider audience to a product that has the roadmap uh, to innovate on on these three legs, if you will. And I appreciate the context. Um, there's definitely a lot to unpack there. Um, I have a couple of questions for you. The the first being like, when you're when you're talking through it, right? And I think you even pointed it out. Like it was a taboo kind of subsector to get into. The fintech space in general is is usually more challenging because you're also disrupting a pretty, um, you know, traditional industry, of course. And uh, you're trying to do what even the larger banks with much much larger balance sheets can't or maybe aren't willing to do. What was probably the, the biggest pain point getting this going? Yeah, I think it's a, a issue of scale. Uh, if you look at credit card industry, uh, the market share was consolidated around top 10 banks in the country because it required, it's the most profitable product that banks have. Hmm. When you look at every other product, banks are losing margins, right? Uh, in terms of size, mortgages are very profitable. Commercial loans are very profitable, right? But uh, the margins are very thin. You know, you have a large ticket item, half a million dollar to a million dollar mortgage, but you make one or two percent in returns uh, with a large risk associated with it. Whereas credit card, you regularly make 20% ROE. And uh, interest rates you can charge is higher than than any other asset class. So it requires a scale uh, in terms of putting the infrastructure in place and marketing to a much larger audience a very ubiquitous product. So uh, you know it was deterring a lot of people from entering the space because of this nature of building an infrastructure that requires upfront investment of $50, $100 million in terms of people and processes and technology and maintaining that infrastructure, uh, building you know, a, a marketing machine, building underwriting machine, right? Uh, so it was a big boy's exactly. business. And what we have done, so the challenge is something that we took on head on and we have built something that allows low cost of entry into the market and experimentation for people because we learned from our own experience. We were not well capitalized like large banks with infinite resources. So we had to be creative as a company to find the most the most efficient way to go to market. Yeah, well, I, I guess that's one of the things I wanted to ask actually on the capitalization side. I'm assuming because if, if you're accepting um, individuals that, that let's say day one banks are deterring, um, you're going to have to be well capitalized on the other end of the, uh, you know, of, of the sheet, I guess. So curious, like what was your capital strategy there to be able to provide the, the, the risk assurance for someone to be able to, to take out a, a credit card while making sure that, you know, their credit profile isn't too dangerous so that, you know, th- they'll make a run on you essentially. Yeah, so uh, first thing first, in any lending business, it's easy to give away money, right? 
I can tell you there's infinite demand. Uh, so so people will take money from you all day long, right? Uh, it's able to collect, in fact, that to find out that you are going to be able to pay back the loan I gave you. That's why it's so hard. So, you know, uh, George is going to be able to pay and willing to pay the back the money that we lend you. So that's the art that you have to be very careful in developing the the virtuous cycle or flywheel, if you will, that uh, your underwriting is working exactly. as intended. So, right. you know, you could end up in, you know, a high loss scenario. And that's why people are so cautious in entering the space because uh, underwriting has to work. Yeah, well, that, that that's exactly what I was getting at is like your your risk profiling has to be top notch, right? And I'm assuming like I took a look at the the kind of app design, the user interface of, of Deserve is honestly, it looks, it looks very cool. Uh, it's tailored for millennials, Gen Z, the upcoming gen that is used to this kind of level of, of UI with social platforms. Uh, it, it's just a matter of, I guess, using even analytics or data, I'm assuming on the back end to figure out what kind of risk profiles you're uh, willing to accept and provide the right leverage for. Yes, and I think we have thought through the workflow. Mm -hmm. What you're doing is four things in, in a sense when you underwrite someone for credit. You're determining the identity of a person. Okay, uh, this is the person who applied for the product, not some bot mm -hmm. uh, or some uh fraudster who talk, took your profile and applied for the card right right so that is the first thing you determine the second thing you determine is is that identity stable does it have a phone number email address physical mailing address associated with that identity so i know where george lives i know how to reach him by phone i know how to reach him by email right uh he has a uh, uh, other uh, uh, lenders or billers who are billing him for on this address on this email, right? So you okay, you're paying your phone bill, you're paying your utility bill, right? You are a real person, right? You live at this address. That's half the challenge. Okay. Then the second half is so, so identity and stability of identity. Then ability to pay and willingness to pay right, uh, are the two other areas. So how do I determine are you going to be able to afford to make the payment on the, the card I'm giving you? Uh, are you employed? Do you have access to financial assets, right? Do you have habit of paying bills on time, mm -hmm. right? So credit reports are nothing but your regular payment history or number of bills you have that you have a discipline and you are someone who can be trusted with paying your bills on time, right? So if you apply those four principles, identity, stability of identity, ability to pay and willingness to pay, using technology and API, right? To determine those four things. So you can enter whatever you want. I make million dollars and I live in a house that costs, uh, you know, $5,000 or, I work at Google. You can say all those things in your credit application, right? 
Right. And yeah, no, I'm sure that they'll, they'll change the profile, you know. And we have a way to determine whether you are actually who you say you are. You live at the address you do, and you are employed by the company you say you are, and you make the kind of money you say you do, right? So we ask you to connect your bank account through Plaid. So we have uh, data from your bank account on opt-in basis by you that allows us to see you have a regular deposit coming into your bank account from some employer or some form of regular payments happening to you, whether it's a wage, whether it's a salary, right? whether it's a payment for a grant or what have you. That's one thing. Then we also can see from your bank account that you're making some payments on regular items, you know, uh, for utility bills, phone bills, uh, rent or mortgage, you know. So we can do your cash flow analysis from your bank account. And then we know you are employed. And we know that, you know, uh, you have access to financial assets. So those are the things that go into verification of what information you put in. You can put in these eight fields of information in credit application. And we, through backend, verify that information. And we give you credit instantaneously. You can start using the card right away. Hmm. Curious about, and I'm, obviously I'm assuming you get this question a lot. I used to work for a FinTech startup before uh, joining the exchange. So we used to get this question a lot as well. Uh, but more so on the security side. Now, I'm assuming two things here. Um, obviously, you know, a lot will be done on the privacy end. But curious, like what form of privacy you would act? Is it something like zero knowledge where, um, you know, on the on the back end, you don't necessarily have full visibility on the data. It's just to, to, to make the operations work on the front end. Is it something of that sort? So we are PCI compliant, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, we take privacy very seriously. So we only use your information for the application you made for credit, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, all this data is encrypted at best and in transit. So none of the PII information, your social security number, your card number is visible to anyone, right? It's all encrypted and tokenized, much like if you think about Apple Card, right? Right. and Apple Pay. When you swipe your Apple Pay or make payment, the card number is not transmitted to the merchant. It's a token that is transmitted. And, and that's the level of security we adhere to. Hmm. And just even on that theme, I know you, you talked about um, you know the, the security aspect. What, what I actually like about the the like you, you basically take it a step further not just on the security side but but even the the, the literacy side uh what i like is on the financial literacy like you're you're also educating uh, customers or users of the card uh you know they, they they get a quick snapshot of of recent transactions they can see their uh, their rewards they have a nicer visual of where their spending habits are going or if they're splurging on certain things do you think that is currently from your your user base do you think that that's addressing or making the connotation that having a credit card isn't as bad? Because you often hear from some of the financial literacy, let's say, in, quote unquote, influencers, and I don't love that word, but for the sake of this conversation, you know, folks like Dave Ramsey, who often talk about cutting your credit cards. Do, do you find that you're getting 
some resistance when it comes to that? Or is the financial literacy within the app helping? I think the credit when it's used as a debt is, mm-hmm. uh, can, you know, if you don't have discipline, can put, put you in trouble. When credit is used as an asset, it opened up a lot of possibilities. You know, I know enough entrepreneurs who started their companies with, you know, borrowing, drawing down their credit card. So, you know, I wouldn't advise people to do that, but uh, it allows you that flexibility of borrowing on the fly. Uh, now, saying that cut down your credit card is is because it's a personal matter where you don't have the discipline and control over your urges to shop and to overspend more than your income, right? To the extent we give you visibility and transparency and uh, budgeting tools uh, to say, hey, you're spending more here, uh, you know, uh, it, it can help you uh, be more aware of your habits, right? Uh, but at the same time, I lightened it to, uh, I'm not going to use smartphone because I'm going to be always on the smartphone and I'm going to suck up all the data and waste my time. So I'm going to stick to BlackBerry and just do email and phone, right? So debit card is like a BlackBerry to me. You know, it has very limited functionality. And, you know, if you're smart, you know, you don't want to use a dumb phone. You want to use a smartphone, right? Yes, sir. No, for sure. Um, yeah, and, and like... You know, there's even these um, these connotations of like societal status, right? With like the Amex card as an example, depending on on which card you have, as soon as you pull that out, right? Like you're uh, you're in a restaurant, you're seen as as maybe someone with a higher net worth. I think that's changing, obviously, with with the upcoming generation. I don't think that matters as much, but traditionally speaking, that that was a very big thing within within that scene, you know. Yeah. No, I think high rewards cards, you know, I know people and myself, I make $5,000 in rewards every year from mm-hmm. my various credit cards. So yeah. why can't you leverage and spend smartly and then get all these rewards? Because you're not getting rewards for using debit card. With credit cards come rewards and perks. Mm-hmm. Just like you say, the status, not just the black card or the platinum card status, it's more about uh you know all the perks that come with it switching over uh briefly to the kind of i, I want to touch on the, like the, the leadership side the culture side from what i saw on linkedin uh, and correct me if i'm wrong but deserve has over 100 employees um you know you, you guys were rated the literally the best credit card uh by money from 2018 to 2019 uh nerd wallet you know was best of awards of 2020 you were awarded uh most innovative company from fast company what advice would you give for, you know, I would say aspiring startup founders listening to this, especially in the fintech space, since it's more comparable, uh, building a company to the recognition that Deserve has received to date? Yeah, I think focus on the product and people, because people build product, right? So you want to inspire people, create a purpose and mission for the company, I have seen people who are subscribed to the mission of the company tend to do better than people who just view that as a job or a career, right? So adding that a little bit of spark or mission, uh, purpose to what you're doing and why you're here can go a long way in people deriving meaning from their work. 
So they, they derive some pride and meaning from their work. And you want to create a challenging, exciting work environment for people to, you know, uh, do their best work. So we call it, you know, uh, five C's, you know, competence, collaboration, clear communication, compassion, and candor as the five values of the company. And we want to hire people that have those five C's and, you know, set them free. So more of a objective driven leadership style. style. Mm. How, how do you define leadership yourself, Kalpesh? Like if you, if you were to give me one definition that, that you stuck with and, and what, how you ascribe yourself as a leader uh, of, of a fintech company, how would that look like? Yeah, I think uh, we as a leader uh, have to talk the talk and walk the walk at the same time. So I don't expect people who work for me or work at the company to do something that I wouldn't do myself, right? Mm-hmm. If I'm asking them to put in long hours, I need to be there in the trenches with them. You have to set that right? example uh, yes. at the end of the day. So yeah. lead, lead by example is, is one. Right. And also be transparent and provide context as to why you're asking them to do things for you. Right. And once you give context and transparency and clear feedback, people will uh, appreciate it. Right. And be authentic is another thing. Right. You know, lead by example, be authentic. Mm. Yeah, authenticity is huge, especially from from a leadership perspective. And I think more so now uh, in a, in a post pandemic world, um, I think that's becoming increasingly important. Like people are just honestly like they have less tolerance for the BS. There's a lot going on personally, professionally. Um, so I think you know that 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 sense of someone who's genuine is much much more appreciated than it, I, I believe it used to be. I don't know if you feel the same way, but that, that's kind of what I've come across. And I think the alignment, right? So exactly. people want to do business with companies that their values are aligned with. Right. So, uh, you know, and I think you're seeing that firsthand in the marketplace where people want to work at the companies that align with their values. People want to transact and do business with the companies their values are aligned with. And I think more and more you're seeing that uh, you know, the trust in the brand that is built by, you know, uh, uh, how you treat your people, how you treat your customers, right? So it's sort of the, the, the stakeholder capitalism where everybody involved is important, the equation. Every piece of the puzzle is important. And you can't just ignore your customers and they can't mistreat your employees, you know, because that's what makes the product. That that's who makes the product. And switching over, and I, I know you said you had to walk, walk, talk the talk, which I completely agree with. Um, in terms of talking the talk, especially to to investors, right? It, it's interesting because you had, or you you were able to wear both hats, right? You were able to wear it when you were an analyst covering, I guess, the public markets, and then more so uh, a fund with later later stage private companies. Now you're on the other side. You're pitching to some of the largest financial institutions in the world and VC firms in the world. You've raised successfully from Goldman, Sally May, Excel, uh, a couple of other names. Um, how was that process like for you? Like, was it, was it, I'm assuming it was more difficult. Usually that's the way I, I think about it. 
being on the investment side to me seems much easier than, you know, the entrepreneur who's emotionally tied to the business. You're doing everything you can to keep, keep it, you know, keep it afloat, grow the business, think three, four steps ahead and then raise money. How was that process like transitioning from being the investor, putting in capital to being the founder seeking capital? Yeah, I think you develop a sense of empathy and, uh, you know, uh, think of put yourself in their shoes, right? They are trusting you with millions of dollars of capital. So you have to be a good steward of capital. You have to be judicious in how you allocate capital in your organization, where you make bets. You don't want to be irresponsible uh, and wild, wild, you know, with your money, right? So I call it as capital is like a blood, you know, donating blood. So every dollar you spend is like giving blood. Blood, sweat, and tears. Yeah. So uh, think of it as, you know, if you think in that those terms, then you will be much more careful in burning cash. I mean, all the startups burn cash, right? Uh, and, and uh, you know, lighting millions of dollars on fire, if you sort of visualize it, then you feel like, okay, I need to be very careful, very responsible, make calculated bet on certain areas and only certain areas. So, uh, you know, yes, just because market is giving you capital uh, to to execute, right? Doesn't mean that you should take it for granted. The money will be there. So you have to be using it as, as the most scarce resource if you have, right? And I think the analogy that people uh, often uh, give in the startup space is cockroaches. You know, even in the nuclear blast uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, cockroaches survive, right? So you want to be that efficient with capital that you can control your own destiny and you're not at the mercy of the market. 100%. I love that advice. Um, I, I got just two more for you. I was I was looking through your, your LinkedIn uh, profile and one of, one of the cool things I, th- I saw, which I just wanted to briefly touch on is uh, you actually have, I think it's, I don't, know, I don't know if you've already done this, but you had a, a clubhouse drop in as scheduled. Oh, I think it's today at 6 p.m. Uh, Pacific. So the the kind of subject around it is is Bitcoin reward cards. I wanted to ask with with the surge in in the crypto world that we're seeing, there still is a bit of resistance between that and and kind of the the rigid financial institutions, the central banks. Do do you see a world where a card like Deserve enables transactions with, via let's say Bitcoin or Ethereum, at least the top market cap crypto coins, to be used for transactions, transfers cross border? Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. Yeah, so I think the the use case for crypto as a store of value is well established because of the scarcity of twenty one million bitcoins, right? Uh, so it's uh, digital gold is what I call it is already well established. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the transfer or form of exchange is where the currency, you know, right now the mode in which investors are or people who love crypto are like, you can't pry it out of my dead hands, you know? So uh, no, people don't want to part with their crypto. So that makes it very hard for it to become a form of exchange, right? R- right. And, uh, you know, that's the challenge. So that's why rewards are key to that equation where you're spending money in fiat currency and you're getting rewarded in something that is going to go up in value, right? That's so the difference. you've heard yeah. occasional 
things about athletes taking their salaries in in Bitcoin and think of how smart you are if you took your salary. It's like taking salary in stock, like Netflix offers you an option to choose between stock and cash. If someone offered you salary in US dollar or Bitcoin, if you pick Bitcoin last year when it was 5,000, you know, it's like getting paid 10 times what you thought. So it's, it's something to think about, but I think ultimately, it's liberating, right? It's libertarian. Uh, crypto is democratizing. Uh, yeah. yeah, and I think that uh, the more uh, fiscal uh, uh, discipline is lost by central government, you know, central banks uh, around the world, the more crypto becomes popular. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but there's one critical thing you you said in there, which I really resonate with is the difference between that and a normal credit card using, let's say, your US dollars or whatever currency you're you're denominated in is that letting go piece that you you brought up. That was really critical, right? Because if I let go of, let's say, whatever, 10 cents on a coin to buy, I don't know, groceries, um, those are expensive groceries, but regardless, there, there's a bit of a fear, right? Because I know that that can go up in value literally in, mul- in like seconds or minutes. I think that's the the major difference is that it's also treated as an investable asset, not just as a you know replacement for gold or a fiat currency. Yeah, you don't want to spend Bitcoin; you want to earn Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. Oh. Yeah. Um, last one for you. I know we're we're close to time, and I, and I appreciate obviously your time and uh, and this great conversation, Kalpesh. For those wondering, like what what does a I guess a day in the life look like for you as a as a startup founder managing you know over a hundred employees? You've raised a ton of capital. Sometimes I don't think it's talked about as much, but the mental health aspect of being a an entrepreneur is much more challenging than people may may assume from the outside. You know, they see the glitz, the glamour, the headlines, but you know the real conversations are not as commonly talked about. So I'm just curious, what, what what do you do during a day just to stay mentally in shape and on top of everything that you have to, to do and, and that's going on? Yeah, I think I have this thing called my meds. And what I mean by meds, I take is meditation. Mm-hmm. 20 minutes of meditation every day. Exercise, ME, you know, uh, 45 minutes of cardio. Diet and sleep. Eight hours of sleep and healthy diet. So. I try to keep that schedule. You know, sometimes I don't get eight hours, or most times I don't. I get seven hours, but that's okay. That's still good. Uh, Above the average. Yeah, yeah. and I think uh, keeping, you know, if you want to go a long way, you want to keep yourself healthy. So you can, you know, all of us are going to have multiple careers and we're going to work till 80, 90 in our lives. So it's a long race. It's a marathon and you need fuel to, to keep going in the marathon. And I think the meds are my fuel, which is meditation, exercise, diet, and sleep. If you found this podcast useful, make sure to share it out with your community. And if you haven't already done so, subscribe to the podcast. I'll see you next time.